Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Warning Tap Podcast. I'm your host, Wanji, and today I'm joined by a fellow true crime-obsessed Marino, Liza. Hello. This week's episode is going to be about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Liza, what are we drinking? Uh, I am drinking a watermelon kiwi truly. Basic. And I am drinking, I don't forget what truly it was, but I poured my, the truly into my new uh, mug that I got from my brother. It's a Jawa, so it's Star Wars. Tastes pretty of good. Cheers. This will be the new official mug for our podcast. It's cute. It's cute. I don't know what it is, but it's brown. <laughs> it looks like wood, like if it was carved. It looks like, um, what's that one little dude, Groot? Um... Not really, but sure. I don't know a lot of things about... <laughs> Star Wars. Stuff like that, so... All right, so Liza, how do we know each other? <clears throat> well, we were actually just talking about how it's almost our 10-year friendship anniversary. Um, so I met Juan in college on STLF, which I'm sure you've talked about in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. But um, we went on a spring break service trip together. Um, fun fact... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Juan, both me and Juan are pretty quiet people. Um, so on the trip, Juan was very, very quiet. We didn't really talk a lot. Um, but we were, once we got back to our university and we were walking across the parking lot back to our dorms, Juan asked for my phone number and I was kind of thrown back because I'm like, this kid didn't talk to me this whole week, (laughs) but like he wants my phone number. But I was like, I mean, sure, I'm not going to be rude. Like, here's my phone number. And here we are today. So it all worked out. All right. So. To, for people to get to know you, I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire oh questions. Are you ready? Nervous, yes. All right. What Hogwarts house are you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you have no I, knew, idea. I knew you were going to ask me that because you ask everyone. Every single person. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't. If you had a guess. Do you watch Harry Potter? No. No? Have you no. seen them? I've seen some of them. Wow. I know I wouldn't be Slytherin because they seem mean. But <laughs> other than that, I have no idea. Hmm. I had a guess. Gryffindor or Hufflepuff. What does that mean? What does that say about me? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if I should be taking it as an insult or a... They're all compliments. Like, they all have their positives and they all have, like... It's like, you know, the the, the STLF is usually, like, the four colors Mm -hmm. and, like, your learning style, your leadership style. That's kind of what they, like, each fall into one of the categories. I'm literally... I'm also a blue. Oh, like, only blue. (laughs) I think I was mostly blue and I forgot what the other one was. So I'm a Hufflepuff, so you might also be a Hufflepuff. Let's just say that. All right. If you had to choose a place to live, where would it be? Like other than where I live? Yeah, like if you're like, no no money is like oh. hmm. an object. Like this is where I would live. That's a hard one because like my first, my first instinct is to say like Hawaii or somewhere like tropical, but I also like hate being hot. <laughs> so... As we're in Florida. Actually, it's pretty cold right now. It's freezing. <laughs> um, but I'm about to go back to Chicago where it's supposed to be like negative 20 tomorrow. So, um, dang, where would I want to live? I think that I would like want to live multiple places. Like maybe have a house in Chicago near my family. Maybe have a house down here so I can come visit you and Marie. If I was rich, I would have houses all over the place. <laughs> maybe one in like Europe. That's fair. All right. Pizza or burgers? If it's good pizza, then pizza. But if it's like Domino's pizza, then no, thank you. Why are you hating on Domino's? You like home run in? Yes. Okay. But it's not the best. It's like. What's your like number one pizza? Um, Nancy's pizza. 
I've never heard of Nancy's it's pizza. So good. Whatever I like the the thinner the pizza, mm-hmm. the better. Like if I can fold it and just like yeah. shove it in my I mouth. I don't like mm. deep dish. The thing about I like about Nancy's is, I mean, I usually get thin crust, but they have like a like a half deep dish, so it's like half as thick as normal deep dish. Because if you eat one piece of deep dish pizza, like you're you're done. <laughs> especially if you're lactose intolerant, like it's over for you, and like you're full. Me. But yeah, but um, Nancy's has like a thinner one that's like still has the same taste and everything but it's just not as filling so they've got options what is your dream vacation my dream vacation is one where you just get there and you don't have to get in the car again you can just like sit on the beach and relax and literally just relax like i think that when i was younger i thought vacations had to be like go see all the sites and do all the things but now that i'm like working full-time and old it's like when I go on vacation, I just want to relax. Yeah. Like when we went to Myrtle Beach, that was perfect. Like mm-hmm. we, there were days we didn't even get in the car. Like we just sat on the beach all day. So drink, got high, sat there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last one. Would you rather have no sense of smell or no? I mean, I guess smell because I couldn't imagine not ever tasting food again. Like if you couldn't taste food, what's the point of eating? But with that, I think the only positive is like if you can't taste your food, then like maybe you wouldn't crave things that are bad. Like if you can't taste it, you might as well eat fucking eat, kale every yeah. day. But I think smell would be like the least, you know, like I think you would get more used to it. Yeah, I feel like there's more positives. The only thing from... is like if I smelled and I couldn't, if I didn't <laughs> know, or like my, like I had one, my great aunt um, lost her sense of smell in a car accident. And sometimes like you would go to her house and you'd be like, Auntie, like, smells like garbage or like you know and she wouldn't know because yeah. she couldn't smell so that might be a little tricky but so you need a partner to yeah i would need i would aim. need someone to live with me who could smell all right before we go into the oklahoma girl scout murders we're gonna go into a quick break and we'll be right back thanks to our monthly supporters this episode is brought to you by liana robert Anne marie and kevin now to the show And we're back. All right. So what got you into true crime? I feel like I've been into it as long as I can remember. Um, My dad and his family have always been like, there's always been like true crime books around my house growing up. And I don't know. It's just something I've always been interested in. Like me and my siblings, our group text is literally just like TikToks, memes, links to things about true crime. (laughs) Like we all just love it so and it's weird because i feel like it's something where you tell people you are into true crime they're like that's weird like what's wrong with you and i don't know how to describe it it's like i don't enjoy it because obviously most of them are like extremely Mm -hmm. sad but it's just like interesting it's just interesting i don't know (laughs) yeah i mean i started listening to my favorite murder the podcast and they say the same thing they're like you know we're not like laughing at these people who are dying or dead or mm-hmm. cheering on the murder the murderers but we just like true crime is just like it's like a genre it's like yeah and i think it's too like it's bringing especially right now i feel like it's so big with like podcasts and everything that it almost like is like telling people's stories that aren't here to tell it for themselves and like mm-hmm. there have been crimes that have been solved because attention has been brought to it like from the media or like 
podcasts or things like that. So I don't know. I feel like if I was brutally murdered, like I would at least hope that (laughs) someone out there was like researching it and making a podcast on it. Like telling your story. Yeah. I guess you kind of talked about it. Why do you think people love true crime? Like, what is the obsession? Because I'm I've, I'm obsessed with true crime, but yeah. also like scary movies. So I think for me, they yeah. kind of fall in similar categories. I think it's almost for me. It's just like that. It's so unbelievable that I'm like, how? Like, how are there people out here who could literally murder someone? How? Like, I don't know. It's just like so unbelievable to me that it's like draws you in. I think. Like we were watching the the one about the guy who killed his wife and two daughters. Yeah, like, like Chris just Watts. Get a divorce. Exactly. It's like what. Like, I think it goes into, like, an analysis of your brain, too. It's like, Mm -hmm. how could you, like, how did Chris Watts kill his entire family when literally all he could have done is just been, like, I want a divorce. Like, why literally millions of people get divorced every year, but you decided to fucking kill your wife and two baby kids and your unborn child? Like, I don't understand. Like, I feel guilty if I had stepped on someone's toes. Because I don't know how people can go from that to like fucking murdering somebody like exactly and i think too something that's cool um is like being into true crime almost like makes it makes you like paranoid but it also like makes you prepared (laughs) prepared like i am like make sure every time i get in my car i immediately check the back seat and i lock the doors and it's just like i feel like i'm always so aware Whereas people, like, I know people who, like, don't lock the door to their house when they go to sleep. And I'm like, someone could literally murder you. And they're like, oh, that would never happen. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I bet that so-and-so never thought that was going <laughs> to yeah. happen either. Like, I feel like I'm super... I feel like most of the murders never thought that it would happen to Yeah, them. <laughs> so I'm always, like, super aware of my surroundings. And I feel like it. there is some good that comes out of it. So why did you decide to choose to talk about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders? <laughs> okay, so I remember I first heard about this case... I was listening to a podcast, I think it was Generation Y, and I had never heard about it before. Um, But I actually, so this is a murder that happened um, in the 70s at a Girl Scout camp in Oklahoma. And I worked at a Girl Scout camp in Illinois um, while I was in college for, I worked there for four summers. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh crap, like this is gonna like hit home for Mm -hmm. me because, you know. I've like been in this exact situation and like it did like it I can exactly picture like when I hear about the story like I picture my camp that I worked at and it's just like I don't know it's like personal to me. So the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders basically there was a camp Camp Scott in Mays County Oklahoma um, and it was June 13th 1977 um, when this all occurred so the day before June 12th um, it was the first the first day of camp for the summer, um, and I believe the girls were going for two-week sessions. So the bus picked them up um, from the Girl Scout like office in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, so they all got on the bus, and then it was like a 50-mile drive to the camp. Um, it was The camp was huge. It was 410 acres of forest, um, and there was about 130, 140 campers that were going to be attending that first session. Um, So I actually read an article, it was from Tulsa World, and it kind of was from the perspective of an older camper. Her name was Michelle Hoffman, um, and she was, I believe she was like a a counselor in training. She was 15, 
and wasn't really a camper anymore, but wasn't old enough to be on staff. So she kind of like helped out, um, helped out the counselors. And she talks about how she got on the bus that day. And there was one girl, Denise Milner, she was 10 years old. Um, and she was very like apprehensive and nervous about going to camp. Um, she didn't want to go, but her mom made her, you know, said, just try one night. If you don't like it, you can call me tomorrow. Um, so Michelle Hoffman kind of took her under her wing and like promised her mom that she would watch over her and that promised her mom, like if she really didn't like it, she would let her call, um, the next day to come home. So she kind of like was her little buddy. Um, and she helped her like move into her tent and all that. Um, so it was Denise Milner. She was 10. And then there was two other girls in her tent, Michelle, I think it's pronounced Gousset, Michelle Gousset, she was nine, and then Lori Farmer was eight, um, and they all shared a tent together. So they get to camp, um, they're staying in, and basically this is exactly how my Girl Scout camp was set up as well, and I believe most Girl Scout camps um, are separated into like different tent or cabin units, so they were staying in the Kiowa unit, um, and they're like platform tents so it's like a big like 12 by 14 foot um like wooden platform it kind of looks like like a pallet i guess mm. like a wooden pallet and then um it's like a canvas tent that gets put up um every season and then there's just like four cot beds inside and this is exactly this is why this case like hits home for me is because like i literally spent <laughs> every summer of my college years sleeping in tents just like this um so the girls michelle Lori, and denise were staying in tent eight i believe some articles say tent seven tent eight but basically it was like the last tent in the line so basically the the tents were set up in like a horseshoe pattern and the counselor tent was the first one and then the ones that the girls were staying in were the last one and it was closest to like the bathroom um and the showers um so i guess i had like rained all that day so they ate dinner and then they couldn't be outside so they just went back to their tents and were hanging out um the article said that they were all all three of them were pretty quiet but they really like hit it off and their tent was actually like kind of getting loud because they, they were stuck in there they couldn't go outside um so yeah so they they went to bed that night it was their first night at camp um and unfortunately the next morning um one of the counselors um got up early so she could be the first one to the shower and she saw something in the woods um, kind of like on the trail and it was like a sleeping bag and when she went up to it she found um, one of the girls inside the sleeping bag like clearly had been clearly was deceased had been like badly beaten um, and then she looked over and saw the two other girls in their sleeping bags looking the same way so they had been all um, all three of them had been bludgeoned I'm sorry Lori and Michelle had been bludgeoned to death and then Denise had been strangled um, and they all had been badly beaten and sexually assaulted um, before they died. Um, and from what they, from what police could tell, Michelle and Lori were killed inside the tent, um, and then Denise was dragged into the woods and killed there. Um, so a couple of things that they 
um, that I've read about or heard. And some of this, some of the stuff I found in this article, other things I just remember from what I've listened, I think I've listened to like three or four different podcasts about this case. Um, but the night before, um, they, the counselor who actually found them said that she had, um, she had heard some like weird noises coming from outside. She's like, it didn't sound like a human. It didn't sound like an animal. It was just like this weird, like groaning, moaning noise kind of. So she actually, according to this one article, she actually got out of the tent and like looked around and didn't see anything. So she went back to bed. Um, and then there were, you know, they were in the Kiowa unit, but then there are also several other, other units on this 410 acre property. So people from other units had reported seeing, um, like a dim light in the woods, um, that was moving. So like someone with a flashlight, um, moving through the woods. Um, another girl said that, um, she actually was awoken by someone coming into her tent with a flashlight, but then they left. So she went back to bed. Um, so yeah, just like a couple things that happened that were a little off, but you know, no one really thought anything of it. How close, like, are the tents to each other? Like, can you, like, legit hear, like... Yeah, I mean, from... I saw a couple, like, maps and things, and then just from, like, my own experience, because, mm-hmm. I don't know, when I picture this, like, I picture a specific unit at my camp. They're probably, I don't know, 20 feet away from each other, 30 feet away from each other. Um, so, I mean, you can see easily each tent, but... Come, why are they spread out so far? You, you don't... Wouldn't they put them, like, right next to each other? Um, I don't know. That's They're a good just... question. I mean, it's at least from like my where my my camp, it's like a big. Each unit is like a big area, so I think maybe just to like fill it up more. Or, um, I really don't know why they're so far apart, but um, you know that you can see everything from the counselor's tent. It's just a matter of like walking across. Is the but... camp area like a private area, like? you need like access to get in or like literally animals people can just walk through for the camp scott oh yeah or just any camp um, I guess, in general for camp scott i think it said that um there might have been a gate but there might have not been i'm not quite sure um but i know from like personal experience my camp and i know for this one too there was like a private road leading to it um but for my camp it was like a private, not a private road, but like there were like two houses on the road. And um, then you turned onto like Camp Dean Road. And once you were on that, there was like the ranger's house and right in front of the ranger's house was like a gate. But like all you had to do was get out and unlock, like undo the gate. There wasn't a lock or anything. Um, so anyone could walk in technically. And like we did have people who because it was right next to like a forest preserve so we did have people sometimes who like would just walk their dogs through camp and we'd have to say like oh i'm sorry like this is private property you know and the camp that i worked at i think was like less than 200 acres so it was a lot smaller um but yeah it's just it's just you know i one of the podcasts we listened we listened to it together and like they went so hard into mm-hmm. the camp and the girl scouts and the counselor is saying that like that's basically their fault and that why you know they they criticized how the campers were in separate tents from the counselors but like i worked at camp for four years and like you don't want to sleep with the count the campers like number mm-hmm. one they stay up all night and they're loud number two like just from like a safety 
you know, you don't like, want an adult sleeping. Yeah, with you don't want kids. adults sleeping with kids. Like, I mean, I went to YMCA camp when I was younger, and the counselor slept in the cabin, but it was also like a whole building basically. Whereas Girl Scout camp, like, it's very the tents are very There's small, and like you have, you know, you're living there the whole summer when you're staff, so you have all your stuff in there. Like, you don't want little girls <laughs> like, you know, in your space, and like, you know, you do like I I heard a lot of. The one podcast we listened to, like, criticized, like, you know, the counselors shouldn't have been able to sleep. They should have been in shifts where they, like, check everything. And it's like, you know, you want your counselors to to get a good night's sleep, to be able to do their jobs in the morning. And, you know, obviously, like, if a girl knocks on your tent at three in the morning, which happens all the time because they're homesick or they're scared or they wet the bed, like, you're going to get up and help them. But, like, it's also, you know... It's a, it's a weird job because you are on the clock 22 hours a day. You get a two-hour break. But other than that, like, if a camper comes to your door in the middle of the night, like, you're getting up with them. Um, so, I don't know. I think, I guess I can see from, like, an outside perspective why there was so much criticism. But I don't, like, I don't know. That's just, like, camping. Like, that's what... And based on, like, this story and then, like your camp experience not much like not it really, much has it didn't changed change you know i think when i listened to that podcast this happened in 1977 so they kind of were saying like oh back then like whatever but like things are the same today <laughs> really like chains are so spread out They're... yeah like we like you know we we still sleep in platform tents we still you know i mean the last year i worked there was 2015 so that was six years ago and i don't think much has changed i i just think it's like a risk it's like going camping with your family. Like anyone could technically get into your tent, but it's just like, at, you know, there's certain things, I guess, is it, is it a risk you're willing to take? Like some parents, I mean, there are some parents like I've encountered over the years who are like, I would never send my kid away. And it's like, that's your choice. But I also think there's so many benefits to like going to camp and being independent and like learning, like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's scary to sleep in the middle of the woods in a tent, but like it also overcoming your fears is like helps you grow as a person so I don't know I just kind of like when I was listening to that podcast I was kind of getting like pissed because I'm like (laughs) this is literally like this still happens today and like yes obviously this is tragic but like you can't like bad things happen and like sometimes there's nothing you can do about it like obviously this was really sad and tragic but like this could have happened at a family campground this could have happened you know if anywhere Anywhere like even anyone camping yeah um so so, would you send your future kids yeah you're gonna send them to camp Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think i mean there's a risk with anything like if you're sending your kid to school there could be a school shooting if you send your kid on the bus the bus could get in an accident like there's gonna be risks no matter what you do but i think the positives outweigh the bad or the negatives like it's you know there's nothing like like i that was my favorite part of working at camp is like seeing girls come in the first day and like they're terrified and they don't want to be there and they cry and they want to go home but by the end of the week they're crying because they don't want to leave camp and they had so much fun so i personally would (laughs) but i guess that's really personal choice yeah i guess when i when i did the stlf camps um when i worked that well, was only one summer but um we had a bunch of kids who didn't some of them didn't know each other but they were from different schools mm-hmm. and you can tell the first day some of them were just like not 
liking it and yeah or like well, these are these stupid activities and games that you want to play i mean they're all in high school so it was different than yeah. little kids but by the end of the week they're all like crying and like oh my god i don't want to leave yeah best friends Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what, like, I think if I have kids and I send them to camp, like, I'm gonna be the parent that's like, tells the staff, like, don't call me, like, she'll <laughs> be fine, like, unless, you know, like, that's you just have to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I went to camp when I was a kid. I didn't go to to sleepaway camp until I was, I think, in eighth grade, and I was really homesick. But like, I got over it. Like, and yeah. you know, you have to learn how to, like, eventually you're gonna go away to college or go away and move out, and like, you gotta. You gotta be comfortable with that. So I don't know. I think I think I'm, I'll get to it later. But there ended up um, some of the families ended up suing the camp because some of the when we listen to podcasts, some of the stuff that the camp did was a little yeah. And I'll talk about that later too because I have an opinion on that. <laughs> but I don't know. I just don't think that the camp was. They're not. I don't think they're at fault for what happened because mm-hmm. we just actually don't really know what happened. But maybe they should have taken but the actions i think they took afterwards yeah they could be questionable but i think (laughs) i don't know i'll describe what i what i think happened and what you know because this was happened in 1977 like all these facts that we have all the facts that other podcasts have used like we take it for granted like we take it with a grain of salt like did it really happen is this the full story like we don't have every detail so you kind of just have to i don't know but um, but anyway, so basically, the counselor found um, found the girls' bodies. So um, this was actually I don't know how they got away with doing this, but it obviously was a good thing. That none of the other girls at the camp knew what happened. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what this counselor did immediately after, but basically all the other campers didn't know that there was a murder. Um, so basically the camp called all the parents, said that there was an accident, um, notified the victim's parents, but all the other parents didn't know what happened. So they basically took all the girls back on the bus. The girls didn't know what happened. Um, you know, and it said like they were just told there was an accident. So all the parents that were there waiting were like praying that their kid got off the bus, um, because they didn't know what had happened. But, um, when they found the bodies, um there was a red flashlight um, on top of their bodies a crowbar duct tape and nylon rope were also found nearby Um, and then inside the tent um, there was a shoe print for a men's nine and a half shoe found in the tent Um, and then actually a landowner nearby um, near the camp said that they had heard um that they had heard a lot of traffic on the remote road leading to camp between 2.30 and 3 a.m. Like car traffic or people like- Car traffic. So, you know, that could be just hearsay or, you know, they said that the the murders happened anywhere between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. So, yeah, but clearly the stuff that was left behind made it obvious that like someone had been there. Yeah. so they the families of the victims were notified like i said and then they brought all the other campers back to the girl scout headquarters um back to their families um so the controversy that we kind of hinted at is that it was reported 
on one of the podcasts or a couple of them i've heard it a few times that the camp admin called their lawyers or their like insurance company before they called the parents um and they were saying like how awful that was and that was wrong and blah blah blah. so i guess they called the police first then they called their insurance company and then they called the parents so i also in addition to having worked at camp i also right now am i work full-time in recreation um i oversee like summer camp programs and like childcare programs um and anytime anything obviously nothing this bad has ever happened like at the place that i work but we call our insurance company anytime anything happens and i think there's a lot of like they're they've gotten a lot of criticism for doing this but like also in my opinion what i think maybe happened is one person called the police, one person called the parents, and one person called the insurance company probably around the same time frame. Like you like your insurance company is there to number one, manage risk, but number two, like they're gonna they're lawyers. They're gonna tell you how to respond to situations and what you should be doing and not just to like save face, but also like to make sure everyone else is safe, to make sure like all your ducks in a, are in a row and things like that. So yes it does sound shitty that like they were calling their lawyers before they called the parents but like in my opinion it's probably not what happened it was probably like multiple people dealing with the situation at once and you know um i think that the police should have been the ones to notify the parents that their kids had died like i don't think that needed to be the camp's responsibility you know because it wasn't like it's not like a boating accident happened happened or like a kid drowned in the pool like this was like an outside person coming in like a crime was committed so I think that the police should have been the ones telling the parents and I I don't know I just don't think like there I know there's a lot of controversy about the order that people were called but I don't think but also I think it said in there didn't they tell the families that they just died of an accident they didn't really I do think what actually happened and I think one of them had said that they called the emergency contact and told them and that person, I guess I'll just say it's an aunt, mm-hmm. ended up calling the parents to tell them what happened. Yeah. And I mean that, yeah, it's kind of like what is even in a situation like that, like nothing is right. Like, it, you know, every kid that comes into my care at my job, like they, we have emergency contacts. And that the reason is if something happens and the parents don't answer the phone, you're going to call the emergency contact. Like you, the parents wrote down something they trusted for a reason. So I don't know. It's like, it's a tragic, tragic situation. And like, there is really no right answer. But in my opinion, it probably, people are taking it way too literally when they like, they're like, they called the insurance company before. Um, And like I said, I think it should have, whether they told the parents it was just an accident or like they were brutally murdered like i think that should have been the police dealing with that because they're trained in how to tell people things like that whereas like a camp director like mm-hmm. i would not want to be the one to do that um so yeah i think that that kind of i don't know that was part of the part of that podcast we listened to where i was like ah. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, yeah, they were going hardcore. I'm like, they were like, this yeah, they're like, I would never. And I'm like, I mean, that's a personal choice, but like, camp is fun. So, <laughs> um, 
And then actually the camp never reopened after oh, really? this happened. They never, they shut down and have never reopened. Um, and then two of the families actually sued the Girl Scout Council for negligence, um, saying that the tent that the girls were in was too far. It was 86 yards away from the counselor's tent. Um, so they claimed that that was negligence, but um, it went to trial and the camp won. Um, I think it was like the jury was split 9-3 saying that, you know, basically, and it, this is kind of what I said before, like it said, the jury decided to, you know, to lean towards the camp because then the whole the whole idea of camp and camping is like put at risk if you're saying that it's negligence to have a tent this far away from another tent like if you're going to get that technical then like what's the point of even having camps or camping um it wasn't the, um, the layout and you said it was like a u-shape but um between where the girls were and where the counselors were there was a a building in the middle like a, the yeah showers. there was like a i don't i think the showers were more close to the girls tent but then there was like a kitchen and we had these at my camp they're called summer kitchens and they're basically just like a one room building that has like you know big windows and it just has like all the um it's like a rain shelter slash has like all of your kitchen stuff for like cooking over the fire so if that was the case then that maybe is um you know you don't want to have like your view blocked um but then again like maybe i know where i worked like we got to choose our tent we could pick and honestly we'd just pick the best one the one with the, <laughs> the least amount of spiders like we had to live in it all summer so we would pick which one so maybe at some point like the camp director should have stepped in and if they're you know at my camp there was nothing obstructing view yeah but if there was something obstructing view then like maybe rethinking that um but yeah so um they did have a suspect pretty quickly um and his name was gene leroy hart um so he was there was actually a big cherokee um, indian tribe in the area so he was a member of that um and he was actually raised one mile from camp scott which i think is interesting because obviously he was very familiar with the area mm -hmm. and probably had been to the camp or at least was very familiar with the area and like you know the roads and the woods and all of that stuff so um was there like dna or semen or anything found there was and i'll get to it in a little bit okay. but it was it was so long ago that the testing wasn't yeah. really i know they've tried to retest it in like recent years but it's just too deteriorated um but so this gene hart he actually is a convicted rapist um and he raped two pregnant women um and he actually used duct tape and nylon rope which were two of the things found at the scene um to subdue them he didn't kill them they survived um but one of the women actually recalls him making like strange noises during the attack which sounded similar to the noises that that counselor had heard there how did they describe it like it wasn't it was like almost like animal yeah noises. it was like animalistic this way they think they thought it was an animal yeah so um he actually he was convicted for those two rapes and then also four counts of first degree burglary um so he was in prison with a hundred or 308 year sentence and he escaped so he escaped from prison four years prior to the murders and they had never, you know, found him 
Um, I don't know how hard they were looking, but <laughs> he escaped from prison four years prior and was kind of just like living on the run. Um, okay, so part of the way that they kind of connected him to the crime, um, other than him being in such close proximity, he was born and raised a mile from the camp. Um, he, they found a cave nearby the camp. I'm not sure how far it was, but I know it was like pretty within like a couple miles. Um, and it was clear that someone had been living in the cave for a period of time. Um, and some of the items that they found in the cave were items that he had had in prison. So it made him made it obvious that he had been living there. Um, so a couple other things that they found in the cave that were interesting. Um, and I heard this on another, but I wasn't able to find it in any articles, but I heard it in a couple other podcasts that a bunch of the counselors reported that they had had stuff missing from their tents but one of the things that they had like a lot of them had missing were eyeglasses which i think is interesting because it seems from all the research that he was just like into women's eyeglasses but in my perspective like i wear glasses and i'm very blind without them so it would be pretty smart if you were going to commit a crime that you stole people's glasses because then if they, they heard you, that they can't see you. Like if, if someone stole my glasses, I'm pretty much useless. <laughs> like I'm, especially in the dark, like yeah. you could do whatever you wanted and I'm not going to see yeah, you. Yeah, I can't see facial features or expressions to get really close. I couldn't even see, like I couldn't see any. I'm very blind. But so I thought that was interesting um, whether he did it on purpose or just as like a weird fetish. fetish. <laughs> um is interesting but he also when he was finally arrested so i think it was 10 months 10 months so they they searched for him for 10 months and when they arrested him he was wearing women's eyeglasses which is interesting um but some and they did confirm that some of the glasses and sunglasses that were found in the cave were the counselors um so the eyeglasses there's some items that he had with him in jail that were found there um, there was a roll of duct tape that matched tape that was on the flashlight. And I guess the flashlight, he had like kind of rigged it to where like only a sliver of light came out so that it was like dimmer so that mm. he could walk through the woods undetected. Um, so I don't know if he had like taped it or what, but the tape found in the cave matched the tape that was left at the scene. Um, and then actually there was crumpled up newspaper inside the flashlight. I don't know if you like use the flashlight and like the big mm -hmm. clunky batteries. Sometimes oh, yeah, it'll yeah, like yeah. make noise. So I don't, he put, he put crumpled up newspaper inside the flashlight and the newspaper inside the flashlight was from the same paper, like same day, everything as some newspaper that was found in the cave. Um, they also found women's underwear and then newspaper clippings, um, in the cave. So it was pretty clear that this Gene character was in the cave. Um, so in my opinion, like that pretty much, I mean, this dude isn't a good dude. Like he- A lot of the evidence points to him. Yeah. So um, they also did some DNA testing. So I guess there was semen and hair left at the scene. And then there was also a partial fingerprint on the flashlight. Um, but like I said, it was 1977. So there wasn't a lot of DNA testing available, but I guess in 1989 they did some DNA testing on the hair, 
um, and it was a partial match. I don't know how DNA testing works or how it worked back then, but apparently, like, there was five markers, and three of them were the same as Gene, um, so it was a partial match. It could have been, it didn't rule him out, and it didn't, like, confirm, Yeah. but it was a partial match for him, um, so they searched for him for 10 months and found him um and then in 19 march of 1979 he went to trial um but he was acquitted i think just because there wasn't Lack enough evidence. Yeah, yeah enough evidence um and then he still had 305 years of his 308 year sentence to serve yeah. for his other crimes so it's not like he was going to be running free mm-hmm. um, but he actually died in prison of a heart attack just a couple months later so he went to trial in march of 79 june of 79 he dropped dead so we really are never gonna know exactly what happened my opinion is that i mean what are the chances and if you think like this guy clearly he's committed rapes he's committed burglaries i think that he was probably very familiar with this camp like he he grew up there and I bet you that he spent his childhood years exploring, sneaking around. Like, he probably knew this place like the back of his hand. So, in my opinion, I think that it was most likely him. But unfortunately, we'll never know. Um, and then there were a couple other things that happened um, before the murders that were kind of questionable. Um, or actually, I mentioned a few of them already. But one thing that I didn't mention was... Um, a counselor reported that two months before the murders, um, during like a training session, her cabin had been ransacked and a bunch of stuff was stolen, which could have been the stuff that they found in the cave. Um, but there was also a note left that said, I'm on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Um, so again, we don't know for sure if this is true or if she made it up or what, but... Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like that goes along with like the theory that he really knew this place like the back of his hand. Like he probably knew when they were coming for the summer. He probably knew, you know, how many girls were in each cabin. He probably knew all this information because he probably been stalking the place since he was a kid. Um, wasn't, um, for the girls, wasn't there supposed to be four in that tent? And one of them, there was like a, they just... Yeah, I heard I heard in one of the other podcasts or a couple of them that there was supposed to be a fourth girl in the tent, but they had accidentally like assigned her to a different unit um, and she had already like moved her stuff in. So they're like, you know what, just stay there for tonight. We'll move you tomorrow. Um, so, so that minor clerical yeah. error saved her life. Yeah. So that I couldn't even imagine like being that... And I think one of the other parents had said that they were trying to figure out what week for her, the girl to start or something like that. Yeah. Or making her choose between the camps or something. And there then... was, I think it was Lori. Lori was the one, she was the youngest. She was so adorable. She was the cutest. And um, I think she really wanted to go to camp and her parents were like, you're, you're only eight. Like, I don't know. Um, and she had this, I believe it was Lori. It could be wrong. But um she was supposed to go to a different camp, like a church camp or something. And at the last minute, she's like, I really want to go to Girl Scout camp. Like, please let me go to Girl Scout camp. So her her mom was like apprehensive about letting her go, but she was very independent and just really wanted to go. So she let her. So again, that's like, I can't imagine being her mom and like being like, why did I let her? And then being 
Denise's mom or Denise didn't want to go, but she wanted to. She made her go to try it out. Yeah. And it's like, she was trying to be a good parent. Like I would do this, like I said before, like I would, (laughs) I would send my kid and say, don't let them call me, like make them tough it out. Um, So it's just like, yeah. And I, I mentioned before the article I'd read about Michelle Hoffman, the one who was like the CIT who kind of helped Denise out in the beginning. She actually, Denise's real name was Doris Denise Milner. Um, So when I guess Michelle had stayed behind to like help the camp staff like close up and like deal with things. And she actually didn't realize that it was Denise that had died because they were calling her Doris. So when she realized like, oh my God, this is the girl I was supposed to like watch over. And like, I promised her mom that I would watch over her. It's just, there's a, a lot of people who I'm sure to this day like are a lot having. of guilt yeah yes um but yeah that's the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders and I don't know every time I hear this case I just it's like I can just picture you know I've had so many campers over the years and it's just like I don't know it hits close to home so yeah I feel like a lot of these true crimes the worst ones are the ones that you don't know the answer to like yeah we I mean we kind of have a guess of yeah, who it I was. I think it was and I think it was but him. since it's not like one hundred percent confirmed, you're like, uh yeah. I guess it's better than some of the other ones where you like no clue whatsoever. There's... Missing person cases are what the ones that really get me because it's not even just like who killed them. It's like, are they out there? Are they mm-hmm. alive? Were they kidnapped? Like it's just crazy to me. Like and it's just crazy to me that like I bet there's a lot of missing person cases out there where like they are dead, but it's like we just haven't found their bodies and it's like how do you not find it like you know what i mean like if you knew where they last were it's crazy like i guess this country this world is huge and like you know especially now that everyone has a camera and there's cameras everywhere exactly and like everyone like everyone i'm sharing my location on my phone with like at least four people like (laughs) someone knows where i'm at yeah like how do you just i don't know it's crazy like i would if i was a criminal nowadays like I would be scared especially with all the DNA testing like there's been a couple crimes that have been that have been solved through like 23andMe and things like that like and I would just be you know what I mean like you could have committed a crime and then your great-granddaughter submits her DNA to 23andMe because mm-hmm. she wants to know and now you're fucked like it, it's just <laughs> crazy fucked. yeah exactly like I did because they asked you I did 23andMe and they asked me if I wanted to like be a part of I don't know what it's called but like basically the database and I was like yeah but I'm like hopefully none of my relatives <laughs> did anything sketchy because I'm about <laughs> exactly like I don't know um what would any recommendations you have for people who want to get into true crime like sh- any documentaries any podcasts any um, shows anything like that I think what really like I've always been interested in it but I think what really got me like super into it in the last couple of years is podcasts um person i think it's a personal preference like i know my brother likes certain podcasts where i'm like oh they're so technical and boring <laughs> and like blah, blah blah like my favorite ones if you want to just just start getting into it um i think my favorite murder is a good mm. one because it's very light-hearted which i know sounds weird but like yeah. they they talk about their lives and other things and then they kind of get into a true crime story and it's like they bring humor to it, but like they're not making fun of the victim. Yeah, they're always respectful yeah. and like it's, it's just like yeah, um, it's like a social gathering. You're talking yeah. about this, and-, and I think for me, like I I've lived alone, um, 
and sometimes it gets creepy when mm-hmm. I listen to like I like to listen to podcasts when I'm like cleaning or like doing the dishes or laundry or whatever and I found myself like I don't like listening to certain podcasts when I'm alone because it creeps me out so I'll <laughs> usually listen to my favorite murder um, or morbid um, they're pretty funny too like th- I like morbid because they like go in on the on the criminals like they like make fun of them and it's so <laughs> funny um, so I like to listen to those two when I'm like trying not to be super creeped out but then I also like ones that get like straight to the point with like no fluff so I like crime junkie and generation Y um, for those I what really got me into it was thinking sideways um, but they don't make new episodes anymore but they do have a ton of old episodes that's really what got me into it in the first place but I think as far as podcasts like I don't know I like just like focusing in on one case and like getting all the information um but yeah yeah I think my same thing my favorite murders I want to listen to I think when I first started I listened to like 50 episodes in like one month. Yeah. I was like binging. I was like, oh my God. And I was learning about all these murders. <laughs> I don't know if they've done this one though. I don't remember them talking about it. Yeah. My favorite murder doesn't just do like murders. They'll do like tragedies. Or creepy and, like, stories. Like, yeah. I, they did one like um, all the deaths at Disney World or Disneyland. Yeah. Like just people who have died at, because random shit has happened. Yeah. yeah. So they do some random stuff too. Any shows, documentaries? Um, the one I just had you start, The Jinx, it's on HBO, um, and it's, it's about Robert Durst, who's, like, the heir to the Durst family, or not the heir, but he was, the Durst family is, like, a huge real estate mogul family in New York, they're very rich, and he was kind of, like, the black sheep of the family, and, um, there was always just a lot of, like, questions surrounding him, because his first wife died mysteriously, um, and then he or was... Or didn't she just go missing, right? Yeah, I think she went missing. And he never found her body. Yeah. So she's missing. And then, so his first wife went missing, and then um, several years later, his neighbor was murdered, and then his best friend was murdered. So I think that's a, quite a coincidence, but <laughs> um, the, the, the documentary... He's also just a really weird guy. He's a weird dude. He's so weird on the yeah. street. Like, um, you did something, because yeah. you're just, like, really off. Yeah, but the reason I love that one is because, and I can't give it away because you haven't finished it yet, but, like, get to the ending, the last episode, and you're like, oh, shit. Like, the basically, I guess, in short, like, the documentary, the person who makes the documentary, Andrew Jarecki, um, he made a movie about Robert Durst in his life um, and then made this documentary um, like interviewing him so all the episodes are like interviewing Robert Durst himself and in the last episode let's just say Robert Durst gets a little tripped up on his words and um because didn't you Ted told me that um you think the person doing the documentary he kind of solved solved things it. yeah I like got himself. to the part where he was interviewing someone so he was like on a tv show I think it was after he was found not guilty and he was like they're like, oh, let's take a little quick break. And he just, like, was talking to himself. Like, yes. almost practicing. Yes. And less, to... I guess, I don't think it's giving it away, but Robert Durst uh, goes to the bathroom and he still has his mic on him. Oh. And he likes to talk to himself. So he says some things that are pretty, I don't It's It's really good. Like, when you get to the last, that's the only documentary, I think, where I was like, oh, my God. Like, 
jaw dropped like it was so good um but other ones i really i i mean i feel weird saying i like them and like yeah. they're good because it's like no they're tragic and awful but like the ones that i guess stu- have stuck with me are um the chris watts one that just came out like in october i think um it's on netflix i think i forget what it's called um and then the gabriel fernandez trials that one was yeah we watched that, that one, one together and it's good, but it's just so. It's about yeah, a. It's so tragic. Yeah, it's about a like a little boy in California who was just like horribly abused, and it just really makes you think like, how did this? How did we as a society let this happen? Like, there are so many warning signs. Um, another one that's really stuck with me is the keepers. I was gonna um, mention that one. That's the one with the nun, right? Yeah, that one is so good. Yeah, that one is. On Netflix. Is that one's good one. just because like the victim herself is being interviewed and like it's just like you can just like feel Mm -hmm. her pain um that one is good i feel like there's a couple other ones have you seen i'll be gone in the dark about the golden state killer no that one's really good it's on hbo no i should i don't have hbo but (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i've wanted to watch that one because that one that's one of that's the first case really that um was solved with the dna um, yeah, ancestry. The, the one that one is um, what's the actor's name? He's like a Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt. His, his wife, wife um, was kind of like a, not a podcaster, but she was like a blogger, and she, she was basically getting all this information. She like did so much research about the Golden State Killer, mm-hmm. so I think she brought it to like so people were paying attention. So yeah. it was like a big deal, and she wrote a book about it. Like there was, she was probably the number one person you. you I don't to. think she finished it. She though. didn't get to finish it. Um, she passed away. She had like a accidental overdose, um, and this case got solved after she died. Mm-hmm. But the cop, the main detective, and her husband and some other guy, um, they helped finish her book and they got released. But yeah. it's really, it's a really good doc. It's it's mostly focused on her mm-hmm. and the crime, so it's, it's like a little bit of balance. Yeah. I think there's another documentary it was on Netflix about the Golden State Killer, and it's not focused on her at all. It's just yeah. about the case. Yeah, that one. That case is crazy. I should watch that. If I get HBO, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other ones. The uh, I forget what it was on. I think it was on Lifetime, but it was about Maura Murray. Um, she was the girl who went missing um, up in I think it was New Hampshire or Vermont, like in the White Mountains. Um, have you heard of that one before? No. That's a, that's like what I see. I missing person cases are the ones that get me because they've never found her body. She basically, I think she was a student at, somewhere in Boston, maybe Boston University, um, and she had been acting very weird. Um, and she like called her professor or emailed her professor and was like, "Hey, I had a family emergency. I'm I'm not going to be in class for a while." But like they talked to her family and there was no emergency and she basically just like got in her car, went to a liquor store, bought a bunch of alcohol, and then just like drove up to the White Mountains, I think in New Hampshire. I've actually been on vacation to the White Mountains too, so it's kind of like mm-hmm. a personal like dang. I yeah, and I, it was really snowy. Um they don't know where she was going, but they know that she like used to go there a lot with her family on vacation. So they think maybe she was just trying to like get away for a little bit. Um, but she got into an accident, or I don't even know if it was an accident. I think she just like it was snowing, so I think she veered off the road. Um, so someone stopped to like a bus driver had he lived on the road. He saw her crash, so he got into the bus and like 
pulled over to her and was like, hey, do you need help? And she, he said she was like very freaked out and um, said no. And then by the time the police got there, she was gone. Her car, she left her car, everything in it, and she was just gone. So they don't know if like someone came and picked her up, if she ran into the woods, like she's, n- there's been nothing. But this is like a, um, it's a documentary like kind of there's a girl I don't remember her name but she kind of like goes and like interviews the family members interviews all the people and just tries to like kind of walk through her final steps and things like that but that's one that hasn't been solved that I'm just like I want to know what happened I'll have to give you my HBO login because another one on HBO called Murder on Middle Beach Mm, you told me that one yeah so the person doing the documentary um so a woman had died and it's still unsolved and the person doing the documentary about her murder is her son Mm. so he's recording documentary he's interviewing people and i won't spoil anything but like basically the first episode you're like oh it's definitely the dad and the second person like oh no it's the sister oh no it's the the uncle it's the this someone from this group so like every episode you're like oh i know who it is and it's like so much keeps building and building like oh this is not clear as i thought it was going to be yikes and it's it's I think it's like forty four episodes, but it's it's really good. You guys yeah, have to watch. Give that. me that login. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Where can people follow you if they wanna? Um, I'm on Instagram. I honestly don't even know my Instagram name. Hold on, <laughs> let me look it up. L Z N C L twelve. So my name, Liza Nickel, with no vowels. Twelve. It's private, though, so you'll have to request to follow me, but I'll probably accept you. I accepted some creepy sugar daddy man yesterday, so I'll probably accept you. All right, so thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share this podcast. You can follow the show on all social medias by searching for Warning Tap. You can become a supporter for the pod through Anchor with listener support for a donation of just 99 cents a month. That's really cheap. That's less than $12 a year. Uh, you can become a supporter to help the podcast keep going. And remember, if you get if you're a supporter, you'll get a shout out on the pod. New episodes come out every single Wednesday. So without further ado, I'm Wanji. I'm Liza. And this has been your warning tap. Cheers.